God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and a heart to receive your truth. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Growing up, my parents would oftentimes go on these trips together, just the two of them, and they would leave me and my siblings with another family member or uh, one of our friends. And I remember whenever they left, it was always a a sad time. You know, you can call me a a mama's boy or whatever, but always missed being with my parents for that week-long or a long weekend. And so what they would do with me and my siblings is they would leave us with a gift, some sort of of presence in order for us to not be as sad. And honestly, there were some years in which these presents were, um, were kind of hit or miss. You know, some years they would just give us kind of a, you know, sweatshirt or a magazine or something. But then other years, we got some really nice things. Like one year, we had a brand new Nintendo 64. And lots of you don't, probably don't know what Nintendo 64 is, but this is when they were, they just came out. This was kind of the hot thing. You know, other years they'd give us, you know, a brand new Game Boy. And we'd receive those gifts and we wouldn't even notice that they left. Like they were so amazing. And other years, like I said uh, before, some years they just weren't that good, and it would cause us to be all the more sad. Now, looking back on that, I can say that my happiness and my sadness during that time was completely dependent on whatever gift they were leaving us with. It wasn't dependent on if they were leaving or staying. We, we knew that they were leaving, and there was nothing that we could do to stop them. But our happiness was, was wrapped up in our understanding of this gift. When I look at John chapters 13 through 16, I I see it very, very similarly. See, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that this is the last few hours of Jesus' life here on the earth. And he's been spending it with his disciples, and they've been hanging out kind of in this upper room. They've had one last meal together. He's washed their feet, and he has shared with them some wonderful truths. And what we saw a couple weeks ago is that he's now moved them from the upper room, and now they've been traveling all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he'll eventually pray in John chapter 17. Well, on the way, he's been sharing with them some, some wonderfully powerful truths, and if he's also shared with them some really difficult and challenging things. We've seen how Jesus has let them know that one of them will actually betray Jesus. He's also shared with them that Peter will deny him soon, and then he's also shared the devastating news that Jesus, will about, Jesus is about to leave them, and where he goes, they cannot follow. This was such devastating news for the disciples. They were so surprised at this that Jesus, just like my parents, wants to leave the disciples with a gift so that their hearts will not be troubled. But here's the crazy thing about what we see in this passage. If you look at verse 7, Jesus goes as far as to say that this gift that he's about to leave them, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is actually better than if Jesus stayed with them physically. Now think about that for a moment. Like J.D. Greer is a pastor in, um, in the United States. He says this. He says that the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Okay, think about that for a moment. Here, here's the challenge for us, is the same challenge for the disciples, is do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe, verse 7, that it is to your advantage that Jesus left physically so that you might have the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of you if you trust in Jesus? Like I have to be very transparent with you this morning. When I was reading verse 7 and kind of studying verse 7, 
I kind of almost said this audibly. I said, really, Jesus? Like, it, it's to my advantage that you would leave, that the Holy Spirit would come? Like, I, I, I can see the things that Jesus did in the Gospels. He did some unbelievable things. You can read about his teachings, his miracles, the compassion that he showed. And I thought to myself, man, what would that be like to have Jesus physically right next to me here on the earth every second, every moment of the day? It'd be pretty unreal, and it'd be really, really helpful. And, and yet, when I read things about the Holy Spirit in the Bible, I think, man, that's, that's less concrete. It's more vague and, and mysterious and abstract. So I was being confronted with, do I actually believe verse 7? And maybe you can relate with me on that, where it actually would be nice to have Jesus physically here. Like when I think about my parents who would leave to go on these trips, they never said to us, hey guys, it's, it's actually better that we're leaving you. Here's, here's this gift that we're saying. This gift is better than, than the presence of your own parents. They, they never said that because they never left us with a gift that good. But the boldness of Jesus in verse 7 shows us that there is something about the Holy Spirit that is so incredible that it's actually better that Jesus left in order for us to experience him. That the spirit inside of us is better than Jesus beside us. Now, in order for us to actually believe that, we have to understand what does the Holy Spirit actually do in our lives? That's the question that we're going to tackle here this morning. Now, before we get into the specifics of that question, let me kind of summarize these first seven verses for us. In these first seven, uh, these first seven verses, it's important to know that Jesus repeats some type of a variation of the phrase, I tell you these things four different times in these seven verses. I think that's important because if you had a conversation with somebody and they said four different times, hey, I'm telling you this, I'm telling you something, I'm saying these things, you would be like, okay, like you're trying to tell me, you're trying to clear up something, something is important that you want to say. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to, to bring clarity to the disciples here because of what they're feeling in this moment. Jesus is trying to provide clarity because the disciples here are experiencing these contradictory emotions within their own heart. That on one level, according to verse 6, they're starting to experience sorrow. They're starting to experience this anguish because Jesus is about to leave them and because of the world's reaction to the disciples, that the world will actually hate them. And so sorrow is starting to settle in, and yet at the same time, Jesus does not want their hearts to be troubled. Jesus wants them to be filled with peace and to be filled with joy, as we saw in John chapter 15. And so you've got these two completely different emotions that are flooding the hearts of the disciples, and Jesus is repeating these things because he wants to be clear on how this sorrow will not dismantle their faith. And Jesus' strategy in order to help them not fall away hinges on the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Verses 8 through 15, Jesus unpacks this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit and he basically uh, kind of circles back on this topic. We've already seen him talk about the Spirit from John chapter 15, but here he goes in depth about what the Holy Spirit actually does. Now I want you to just stop for a moment and put yourself in the shoes of the disciples in, in them hearing about the Holy Spirit for the very first time. 
Like this must have been, this must have been a little bit strange for the disciples to, to hear Jesus talking about this mysterious spirit who's going to come and live inside of them. Like, do you remember the first time you heard about the Holy Spirit? Like, do you remember how bizarre that was, how weird that concept was? Like, I'm trying to explain the Trinity to my five-year-old, trying to explain to her what the Holy Spirit does. And, hey, when you become a Christian, this Holy Spirit, who is God, is going to come and live inside of you. And it's like, man, that's kind of creepy. Like, that's kind of weird. It's just a weird concept when you think about it for a moment. The whole concept of the Trinity is hard to understand, which begs the question of what do you think about when you think about the Holy Spirit? In other words, how would you describe your relationship with the Holy Spirit here this morning? What are some words you would use? What are some phrases you would use to describe how you think about the Holy Spirit? See, for a lot of believers, I think they fall into one of two categories. The first category that a lot of people fall into when they think about the Holy Spirit is they're absolutely consumed by Him, like they're obsessed with Him. They think that the Holy Spirit is behind everything, and they start to attribute things of the Holy Spirit that the Bible doesn't necessarily attribute Him doing. For example, and this might have been you here this morning, if you're coming to church this morning, you're running a little bit late and you get into the parking lot, and you're like, oh, I don't want to be late. And so you start praying, Holy Spirit, open up a parking spot near the front. And you get towards the front, and there's no parking spot. You're like, Holy Spirit, why didn't you work that out for me, right? You're starting to attribute things that the Bible doesn't necessarily attribute the Holy Spirit to doing. That's, that's kind of one category. But then another category is that some believers largely ignore the Holy Spirit. Where because there is so much mystery, there is so much misunderstanding, and a lot of things are a little bit vague in Scripture about what the Holy Spirit actually does, that we largely ignore Him. We've got the Father, we've got Jesus, and then we've got the Bible. And then we kind of leave out the Holy Spirit because He's too vague. I heard one pastor explain it that a lot of people view the Holy Spirit like the pituitary gland, where we know it's real, it serves some purpose, but we're not exactly sure what it all does, right? So there, there are all these ditches as it relates to the Holy Spirit that we need to avoid, all kinds of, of misunderstandings. And yet in order for us to believe verse 7, we need to understand verses 8 through 15 because here Jesus unpacks what the Holy Spirit does. In fact, what Jesus does in, in, in these verses is he provides kind of two different perspectives on the Holy Spirit. In verses 8 through 11, Jesus explains the Holy Spirit's relationship with the world. And then in verses 12 through 15, he explains the Holy Spirit's relationship with believers. So we're going to look at the first section here in verses 8 through 11 together. Here in this section, if you look at verse 8, Jesus summarizes what the Holy Spirit does with the world or those who do not know Jesus. He says in verse 8, And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, so three areas that the Spirit of God brings conviction, sin and righteousness and judgment. And then verses 9 through 11, he unpacks that in more detail. Now, don't gloss over the word convict there. This is a really important word that Jesus is using here. This is a word that shows up over 18 different times throughout the New Testament. And every occurrence, it, it has to do with showing someone's sin in a manner that calls them to repentance. Okay, so when you think about the Holy Spirit who's convicting unbelievers of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, he doesn't just do that with kind of an intellectual awareness for them. 
This is not just a cerebral experience where they're being convicted. But this word in the original language has a personal force to it. It's calling them personally to repent of their sins. And it's in three areas. The first one in verse 9, Jesus says concerning sin because they do not believe in him. So I'll kind of describe this, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of their need for Jesus. And I see that here because in verse 9, Jesus connects this idea of unbelief with sin. Or you could say that unbelief leads to sin, or unbelief is the root of all sin. That unbelief not only brings condemnation or will lead you to condemnation, but unbelief is the willful ignorance of one's own spiritual need. That unbelief is, is the inability to perceive the fact that you're walking in spiritual darkness and hopelessness. Okay, unbelief is, is more than just not embracing certain truths about Jesus, but unbelief is the stubborn refusal to treasure Jesus as altogether beautiful and soul-satisfying. That unbelief is so dangerous because it is blindness to the only remedy to a diseased and sinful heart. And there's a, there's a blinding and there's a hardening activity that unbelief will lead someone's heart towards, which is why we need the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to pierce through that hardening and to provide clarity for the need of the gospel. So the Spirit convicts the world of its need for Jesus. Secondly, the Spirit also brings conviction as it relates to God's standard. That in verse 10, Jesus talks about bringing conviction as it relates to righteousness. And here, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of its empty and even unclean righteousness. See, trying to do what is right apart from the power of the Holy Spirit will lead to a type of righteousness that's empty and unclean. This is very similar to what Isaiah uh, declared in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, where he's talking about the righteousness of his own people in his own day, and he calls it dirty rags. Uh, there's a sense in which the world's goodness and righteousness is still unclean, and they need to be convicted about what God's standard of acceptance actually is. See, many people in the world think that if they just do a little bit more good than bad, then God will accept them. Like God's grading on a curve, and so if I'm, if I'm better morally than my neighbor, then God's going to accept me, that that's what it means to be righteous. The world, I think, doesn't understand that God's standard of acceptance and, and accepting them and approving them into heaven is actually perfection. That Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 48, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And none of us meet that standard of righteousness. We all miss the mark. And the Spirit of God will, will work in such a way as to convict the world of that standard of righteousness in order to drive the world to their need for the only one that's perfect, who is Jesus Christ. And then thirdly here, the third arena of conviction is the conviction of accountability. In verse 11, or coming judgment, Jesus uh, connects this idea of judgment with the ruler of this world. He does this because the role that Satan plays, the ruler of this world, is because he's the father of all lies. He brings confusion upon the world as it relates to judgment. Now, judgment here could refer to, to two things. It could be that Jesus is using this 
to talk about the world's inability to determine or perceive things. He's uh, called them out in chapter 7, verse 24 already, that the world judges based on mere appearances and not the heart. Or this could mean um, the, the coming judgment, where everybody will stand before a holy God and have to give an account. Now, the world honestly needs both, uh, and, and the Spirit's role to convict them of both, because many people in the world fail to realize that they will stand before a holy God and give an account. And yet, because the ruler of this world, referring to Satan, has been condemned or has been judged already, this is Jesus referring to his work on the cross just days from now, that according to Colossians 2, the rulers of this world, the satanic powers, have been disarmed and their lies have been exposed. Now, when you think about these three areas that the Spirit brings conviction upon uh, those who do not know Jesus, it all will lead them to Jesus, it will, when the Spirit is at work in the life of an unbeliever, revealing their sin, revealing God's perfect standard, revealing that they'll have to give an account, it should lead them to asking the question, well, what's the remedy? What's the solution to all of this? And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit will drive someone towards the person and work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. In fact, there might be some who are here this morning where you're here on church on a Sunday morning, and maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And perhaps you're experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit here this morning where he's bringing conviction upon your sin, upon God's standard of perfection, and upon the fact that you'll have to stand before a holy God and give an account. I've been praying for that, that there are unbelievers among us that you would see your need for Jesus and put your faith and trust upon him. And the reason why Jesus is the solution to your problems is because on the cross, Jesus paid for your sin, paid the penalty of all of your rebellious deeds. But he's also given you his perfect righteousness so that by faith you can meet God's standard of perfection. That if you put your faith upon Jesus, God looks at you and sees Jesus, sees his holiness and his righteousness so that you are then accepted. So when you stand before that holy God, God will look at you and he will see Jesus because you are now hidden in him. And if you're an unbeliever just wrestling with maybe the Spirit's bringing that conviction upon your life, we would love to talk to you about what it means to to be a Christ follower and to trust Jesus with your life. We'd love to talk to you even after the service about what that looks like. But this is what the Spirit does with those who are in the world who are not believers. And then when you get to verse 12 here, it seems like Jesus pivots, and now he's talking directly to his disciples or those who are believers about what the Holy Spirit does. And so verses 12 through 15, I'm going to point out two things that the Holy Spirit does for the believer. The first thing that I'll point out in verse 13 is the Holy Spirit provides a guiding illumination, a guiding illumination. If you look at verse 13, Jesus says, that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And the spirit will do this, not because he speaks on his own authority, but, his, but based on what he hears from the son and of the father. Like you can tell that the spirit is at work in your life when he is revealing the things of God in your heart. First uh, Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, But as it is written... 
what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us, how? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And so as the Spirit guides us, he is revealing the things of God in our hearts, but he doesn't do this randomly or out of the blue. If you notice here in verse 13, the Spirit is actually guiding you into something. He's guiding you into the truth. And so when you open up the Word of God and you're studying the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, because He is the Spirit of wisdom and revelation according to Ephesians 1, the Spirit unlocks the meaning of truth into your heart. The Spirit illuminates what the Word of God actually means, bringing understanding that leads to transformation. I think that's, that's absolutely essential, that the Spirit guides you into the truth. Now, what does the truth refer to throughout John's gospel? In fact, look at John chapter 14, verse 6. This is still the same conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. He probably said John 14, 6, maybe an hour or two before John chapter 16. Jesus declares to the disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so what the Spirit of God will do when you open up the Word of God is the Spirit will guide you into the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is not just going to give you more information and explain things, but the Spirit will connect the Word of God to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's the way that we're transformed. You and I are not transformed by, by being given more facts and, and understanding about the Word. That's, that's essential and needed. But we are transformed when we see the beauty of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this guidance that the Spirit provides is not just a cognitive guidance, but what the Spirit will do, He will use the Word of God and He will drive the truth down into your heart to impact your affections and to impact your desires. Paul will even say in Ephesians 1 that the Spirit is the one who illuminates the eyes of our hearts. He's the one that enables us to see the beauty and the power and the grace of Jesus. And the New Testament writers understood this. Like Jesus is like laying the foundation of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. But the New Testament author, authors kind of apply it in different ways. If you read even the book of Ephesians, Paul understood the role of the Spirit. When you look at Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, you notice that Paul is explaining, he's explaining, and he's explaining. He's talking about the wonderful beauty of the gospel. But then Paul does something quite odd. He stops in the middle of his letter at the end of chapter 3, and he stops explaining, and he starts praying. Isn't that odd? He never does that. Like, he, he might pray in the beginning, but then he kind of goes off into exhortations and explanations. But Paul does that in Ephesians because there is a type of understanding and knowledge that only the Spirit of God provides Look, look with me at Ephesians chapter 3. This is what Paul, he stops explaining and he starts praying about this. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then notice this. He says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, what is verse 19 all about? How can we have a knowledge about his love that surpasses knowledge? It seems like a contradiction, right? Well, there is a type of knowledge that comes not by accumulating more facts, but there is a kind of knowledge that can only come by way of experience. See, what Paul wants for believers is not just to know the facts about God's love, but for them to feel it and to experience it deep within your soul by way of the Spirit's work in your life. This is what the Spirit does. This is his guiding illumination in the life of a believer. I was thinking about this, and I thought about my, um, my strategy as it relates to, to discipleship with my girls and with Lila, who's two right now, I take discipleship very seriously. I've been trying to um, expose her to the, the beautiful riches of Taco Bell. And I've been trying to explain it to her. Like, you know, Taco Bell is really good. There's this thing called a cheesy gordita crunch. It's got cheese in the middle of the soft and hard taco and this Baja sauce that no one really knows what it is, but it's absolutely delicious. And, and I've explained it to Lila. She's two and a half now, almost three. And, and I've, I've showed her commercials on TV of it. I've even eaten it in front of her so that she can see kind of what it looks like. And up until that point, like, she has an understanding of a cheesy gordita crunch. But it wasn't until she was two months old did she taste a cheese. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't two months old. It was 15 months, but you probably would believe two months, right? Yeah. So she, once she experienced it, when she was about 15 months old, I gave her a bite of it, and she loved it. No surprise there. She's, you know, she will be a converted follower of Jesus. I, I, I can feel it. But she tasted it, and that was the moment for her when she knew what a cheesy gordita crunch was. She, she understood it, but then when she tasted it, that's when she experienced the glory of a cheesy gordita crunch. And look, in a very similar way, what the Holy Spirit does with the truth of God's word is he moves you from just knowing it up here and to moving it into your heart so that you consume it and you experience it for yourself. See, the challenge for us is that for many of us, when we ignore the Holy Spirit, I'm like, I just got the Bible here. I've got my own mind up here. I can understand this and, and, and actually live this out. But you can't apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what, it's what guides you so that it leads you to transformation by way of experiencing it. I heard a pastor use an illustration that I had to look into uh, more in depth because I was kind of confused by it. I didn't really understand that there were something called an envelope uh, before there was glue. And I was like, how do you close an envelope before glue? This is before my day. Well, what they would do is they would take wax and a flame and then a seal and they would take that wax and they would put it close to the flame to soften the wax, to make it susceptible to the seal. And they would take that seal and use the wax to close up envelopes. Now, if you didn't use the flame and you just had the wax and the seal, one of two things might happen. One, you could actually break the wax off and it wouldn't be useful. Or if you use the wax without the flame and you use the seal, it's going to make a superficial outline 
on top of that envelope. But if you use the wax and the flame, it's going to change the wax into the image of that seal. Now apply this illustration to the role of the Spirit in our lives. Think about wax as your own heart. Think about the flame as the Spirit of God, and think about the seal as the truth of God. Now, if you, if you read the Word of God, the truth of God's Word, without the Spirit, without the flame, you're going to read something like, God is love, and you're going to include, yeah, you know, yeah, God's love. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, God's powerful. God's love. It's only going to leave a superficial imprint on your life. But when you read the truth of God's word with the flame of the Holy Spirit who's guiding you into the truth, you're going to read the fact that God is love, that God is powerful, and all these truths about who God is, and it's going to melt you under the truth and change you and transform you into the image of Jesus. It's the challenge for so many of us is, you know, we've got the wax of our hearts, we've got the seal of God's word, but we're missing relying on the Holy Spirit when we're trying to study the scriptures and allow him to guide us into the truth. And so if you're wondering, okay, well, how do I know if I'm being guided by the Holy Spirit? What does that actually look like? Let me give you three questions to ask yourself to know if you're being guided by the Holy Spirit as you read the Word of God. Here's the first question. Are you being challenged by the Word? Like when, you, when you're studying this and the Holy Spirit's guiding you, bringing illumination as you understand the Word of God more, is it making you uncomfortable as you study it? Right? Because we all have sin, because we all have issues in our lives. When we come to the word of God, like that is holy and there are commands in here that don't match up with our life, we should be consistently made uncomfortable by what the word of God actually says. And I think the Spirit's role in our lives is to show us areas and blind spots where it's not matching up with the word of God. If you're reading it, and, and you feel like the word is just affirming the way that you're living day in and day out, you may not be um, being guided by the Holy Spirit. Another question to ask to know if you're being guided by the Spirit is are you worshiping Jesus while you read it? Like when you study scripture, is this more of like homework for you to do? Does it feel like a chore or like a, a classroom feel where you're just kind of hunting for more facts? Or when you study scripture, is this like a, a mini worship experience? Are you being wowed by Jesus, being shown the beauty of Christ in the word of God? If that's true, you know you're being guided by the Spirit. And then thirdly, another way you can tell is, are you applying it throughout the day? You know, part of the role of the Spirit is he guides us into the truth that's not only reserved for your devotions uh, in the morning, but it's all throughout the day. That as you study God's word, the Spirit of God is bringing to mind, is causing you to remember the truth that you know when you're at work, when you're doing the dishes, when you're being tempted. That's when you know the Spirit is guiding you with the truth. And so the Spirit is, is providing this guiding illumination. But not only that, the second thing, and, and these are definitely connected, in verses 14 through 15, Jesus also talks about the role of the Spirit as spotlighting Jesus in the life of a believer. Or as he puts it in verse 14, he says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me. Even at the end of chapter 15, he says, When the Helper comes, the Spirit of truth, he will bear witness about me. 
Now, this is not undue elevation of the Son compared to the Father and the Spirit. Remember, within the Trinity, they all have equal value. In fact, if you think about their role, it's almost like this Trinitarian dance of of the Father and the Son and the Spirit just constantly giving each other more and more glory and honor. We've seen in John chapter 5, verse 23, that the Father has declared that all honor should be given towards the Son. But then Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 13, says that we need to bring honor to the Father. See, they're, they're constantly giving glory and honor towards one another. But Jesus here talks about this Spirit specifically giving glory to the Son. I've heard Tim Keller explain this before, that if the, if the Holy Spirit had a bedroom, that every wall in his room would be posters of Jesus Christ. Like he's just, he's absolutely consumed with Jesus. And every time you walk into his bedroom, he's going to be glorifying and bearing witness about Jesus. That that's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. In fact, in the end of verse 14, Jesus says that the Spirit will come and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Or some translations have, he will show me to you. And so the Spirit's job here, again, is to melt you under the truth of Jesus in order to make much of Jesus. Like you know that the Spirit is working in your life when you're studying the Scriptures and you're not only consumed with worship about discovering new facts, but you're being consumed with worship at seeing the grace and the beauty of Jesus in the Word of God. Let me give you an example. When you're when you're reading like Ephesians 1 and you're looking at all of these amazing spiritual blessings that are yours because you're a Christian and you're seeing that, man, God has chosen me, God has adopted me, God has lavished grace upon me, God has forgiven me, God has brought redemption upon my life, God has given me this inheritance for all time. Look, you know that the Spirit of God is working in your life when you not only conclude wow, these are really cool truths. I didn't know these before. But you also conclude, isn't Jesus amazing? Like these seven spiritual blessings are mine because of Jesus, that I'm adopted because of Jesus. I'm forgiven because of Jesus. I have an inheritance because of Jesus. Isn't he great? Shouldn't my whole life be about worshiping and following Jesus? Like you know the Spirit of God is at work in your life when you're concluding the magnificent beauty of Christ as you read the word of God, do you see the difference? One is reading it without the Spirit guiding you, and the other is reading it with the Spirit who is spotlighting Jesus as he's making much of Christ. Like, you might be wondering this morning, man, that's great, that's awesome that the Spirit does that, but I just, I don't experience that consistently. I don't, I don't know if the Spirit of God is working in my life. Well, let me give you three questions to ask yourself if you're, if you're struggling with the Holy Spirit being at work in your life. Here's the first question, just to consider, just to evaluate in your own life. Uh, are you grieving him? Remember, the Spirit of God is not an it, it's not a thing. The Spirit of God is a person. In Ephesians 4, we're commanded not to grieve the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit by having lingering sin in your life. And sometimes the Holy Spirit kind of feels too crowded in our lives to work because of all the sin that's in our lives. And so to not grieve him is to repent and to confess that sin. Or secondly, maybe you're not experiencing the Holy Spirit because you're limiting him. 
Remember that he's God. Remember that he has the same power as Jesus and the Father and to expect him to work in your life. Maybe you're not experiencing him because he doesn't have full access to every area of your life. To not doubt what he can do, but to understand that he is supernatural. And then number three here, maybe you're not experiencing the Holy Spirit because you might be ignoring him. Just to remember that he's actively at work in your life. He's trying to move you and lead you towards Jesus who will provide transformation that you need. Look, do you believe that the spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you? Do you believe that that historical distance between you and Jesus 2,000 years is no obstacle for you to know Jesus, love Jesus, and follow him? Do you know why? It's because of this supernatural and mysterious partnership between the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and your hearts. And when those three things come together in this mysterious and supernatural dialogue, you are transformed. There is a power there. In fact, a a more deeper power than if Jesus was right there next to you speaking to you the words of Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus wants his disciples to know here in these, in these closing moments before he goes to the cross, is he wants their hearts not to be troubled, doesn't want them to fall away, so he's giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit to take his words and to imprint them on his heart. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his work in our lives. Lord, we just confess to you that far too often, Lord, we downplay the Holy Spirit. We sometimes ignore him. And so, God, I pray that you would give us a a renewed relationship with him. God, I pray that you you would help us to understand what his role is in our lives better. God, I pray that as we walk with you, that we would not rely on our own strength, on our own power, on our own wisdom, but that you would help us to become more and more aware of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. God, we want to look more like Jesus, and we cannot do that without your spirit. So we need him, and we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.